You're listening to The Lodestar, the supply chain and logistics industry's leading source of insight. This podcast was created and produced by MK and Associates and your host, Mike King. Welcome one and all to another jam-packed episode. Coming up, I'll be hearing from Lodestar's Alex Anane and Freightways' Eric Kulish about just why Tiarka is pitching its air cargo forum tent permanently in Miami and what this year's event reveals about the health of global air freight and the carriers are investing so heavily in it. I'll be examining the latest economic and freight rate trends with TAC indexers Peyton Burnett. And have you ever wondered how the biggest shippers buy their freight? How they deploy technology or plan for an economic downturn? Or perhaps how they deal with partners who don't stick to their contracts? Well, stay right here because we've got an interview with one of the world's largest shippers when we're joined by Electrolux's Ocean and Air Transportation Planning Director. And she doesn't hold back. It's Tia Mahan. The top carriers, the ones which we have long-term contracts with, they are secured, but we are having some very reasonable discussions around being at competitive levels, but giving them breathing space. And with others, it's absolutely about Remember last year, we were on the other side. Now it's your turn to come back to the table and give us what's at the market level. Yeah, you reap what you sow. It's payback time now. Absolutely. <laughs> I, would, I would, in a way, yes, but there's no schadenfreude attached to this, right? It's 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 the market dynamics and uh, uh, yes, well, yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, everybody. I'm Mike King. Welcome to the Lodestar Podcast. Before we start, just a reminder, you can find all episodes of this podcast on your platform of choice and on the lodestar.com. And you can contact me with any comments on miking121 at gmail.com. First up, as trailed, I am delighted to say we've got one of the big hitters of our industry joining us, representing Swedish multinational appliance making giant Electrolux. It's Tia Mahan. Tia is Ocean and Air Transportation Plan Director at Electrolux, which means she is responsible for global ocean and air transport planning across the company. This includes, but is not limited to, standardization of processes, end-to-end visibility, and operational excellence. Previously, she was responsible for premium freight services, including sourcing, implementation, and operational monitoring of international expedited freight for the group. All of which means, of course, she can walk us through the trials and tribulations of freight procurement over the last two COVID-stricken years and explain how Electrolux is planning its supply chains as the global economy slows. Hello, Tia. Thanks for coming on to the Lodestar podcast. Hey, Mike. Happy to be here and thanks for inviting me. Tia, so I just before we really get into some of the subjects we want to talk about today, A bit of background on you uh, for our listeners. So prior to taking up these very senior roles with Electrolux buying freight, you were essentially on the other side of the fence working for 3PLs. So I guess you're sort of like poacher and gamekeeper, so to speak, or you've got both sides covered, right? Yes, and I am very proud of the provenance, uh, Mike. Uh, I cut my teeth on the operational and uh, portions of logistics uh, at uh, two of the better known 3PLs. And after getting the grounding there, of course, I got this great opportunity at Electrolux 17 years ago. And ever since then, I've been able to apply a lot of that learning here 
And I sometimes like to believe that it also increases the empathy I have for our suppliers. Uh, I know what a tightrope it is, especially for the freight forwarders out there. And that's why in our interactions with them, it's always a bit easier because I've had a background in, in the industry. I can imagine that's very useful. I just want to give our listeners a little bit of the sort of insight into the scope of the Electrolux business before you can explain it a bit more detail. Your annual full container load or FCL volumes are around 175,000 TAU, which is pretty huge. Annual air freight tonnage of approximately 6,000 metric tons. Now, what I really want to ask right now, of course, is how you're planning to renegotiate your shipping contracts as we watch spot rates plunge and how you're planning uh, your volumes as we look forward, given all of these really fast changes to the demand picture, the macroeconomic landscape on which you're working. But we'll come back to those issues a bit later. Could you first perhaps explain the scope of Electrolux's product range and the size of the business and the complexity of your global inbound and outbound finished product supply chains? Electrolux, essentially, we believe that we shape living for the better. And that kind of permeates everything into everything that we do on a daily basis. We are one of the best known and absolutely top-end manufacturers of appliances that cover the spectrum of taste which would mean I think that goes into a kitchen, you know, hobs, cookers, hoods, microwaves, refrigerators, freezers, and dishwashers. Then there's care, which is all about caring for the clothes we wear. It includes washing machines, tumble dryers, and even small appliances like steam irons. And then we have a whole spectrum of the well-being appliances. Uh, started with the vacuum cleaners, and now, of course, it includes air conditioners, water heaters, and other small appliances in this area. That's the product spectrum. Apart from that, uh, we have just about every other element of complexity that you can think in terms of geography, in terms of product size, and in terms of consumer reach. We have over 30 factories worldwide and a supplier base, which is also quite widespread. We sell over 60 million units every year, and we also reach over 120 markets all over the world. As of today, we have more than 400 million Electrolux appliances in use all over the world, which means that from an inbound perspective, we have the complexity of geography and the widespread nature of our manufacturing footprint. From an outbound perspective, we are reaching a lot of markets and also dealing with the fact that we are going beyond the bricks and mortar to much beyond that to, you know, D2C and e-commerce model as well in many of the cases. And then we have the whole aftermarket for those 400 million appliances which are in use all over the world. So a very large area to cover and the complexity could come in even small things like trying to move in a very competitive environment where, you know, every semiconductor and chip and printed circuit board is in huge demand, trying to get it off the assembly line of the supplier as soon as it's made into the factory so that we can stop our lines from going down. And on the other extreme, you could think of trying to put a large Electrolux side-by-side refrigerator into a, a fancy Parisian second floor house, uh, which is at the end of a cul-de-sac in Paris. And then how do you get a really beautiful large machine like that into the second floor uh, where the elevators basically can just house uh, one person? So yeah, that's just an, a glimpse into the kind of complexity we deal with. But one thing is there, it, it makes life interesting every day. So yeah, it's always fun here. And presumably to manage such complex supply chains, you you must use a lot of automation or tech to to help, right? Can you just give us a rough idea of how you do that? Yes, with Electrolux, and this is something that is going to be a refrain in, in maybe other areas we touch as well, it is about the long game. So 
as a company, we had anticipated maybe five to seven years ago that there is going to be a huge push towards connected appliances, smart appliances, the kind of consumer focus that we have. We knew that the push towards digitalization was on the way. So we accelerated into that mode much before it became essential due to the pandemic or whatever just preceded the pandemic. And as a result, when our consumers expect us to be better in that space, they, they expect us to be right there at their doorstep with the appliances and then give them the connectivity of, uh, that comes with smart appliances and the whole experience of having an interaction with Electrolux, not only through the product, but you know what precedes it when they're trying to order it and then what follows when they're using the product. We ended up not only doing a lot of changes in our supply chain to make it more integrated and digital, but we also focused a lot on operational excellence in our manufacturing because we knew that we need to be really efficient to be able to be profitable. And it's those profits then which kind of go back into making us even more digitally ahead of competition and there to serve our customers. So it's been a virtuous cycle so far with a few bumps along the way, as you would know. But yeah, that's the long game that Electrolux has always been in. I don't know if you can talk about the type of technology or the technology providers that, that you use, but maybe you could talk more generally about these digital solutions that we hear so much about in the freight industry. Are you able to get the right management tools, the right data, the right processing power uh, and the cargo visibility that you want? Or is this part of our industry that's still a work in progress? Speaking specifically about the technology and, and, and logistics, it's, I would say it's still a work in progress. Not to be too cynical, I think there is a lot of investment and a lot of interest in building tools and the right kind of analytics and dashboards and predictive tools that would make uh, our lives simpler. But we're still very far away from there. Just to give you an example, we have a lot of companies and solutions built around predictive ETAs, especially in the last two years when, you know, timely arrivals or at least predictability in arrivals of your inbound components was really important or even your outbound finished goods to your customers. And from what we've seen, there is a lot of AI and machine learning and APIs from shipping lines coming into these solutions. There are different metrics they track and all of it comes together in a beautiful way to give you a predictive ETA. What's very interesting is that even with all of those elements, from what we've gathered from the industry, the accuracy is just around maybe in the high 70s or 80%. And what takes it up to 90 plus or a 95 plus percent accuracy is actually manual intervention and scrubbing. And you know some really cute anecdotes that we've heard about how companies like this, uh, especially during those infamous congestions around uh, Long Beach and uh, Los Angeles ports and the U.S. West Coast, when you would have some 60 or 90 vessels anchored outside, many companies would have people at the port with binoculars trying to see how far the ships away were anchored away and when they would actually get a chance to berth. So we are getting there with a lot of investment and interest in terms of the technology, but we still require a lot of manual intervention too. Okay, binoculars at LA Long Beach, interesting. We'll come back to shipping lines and ETAs and, and reliability a little bit later. In terms of the technology, one of the areas of that field that seems to have accelerated a bit quicker than the others is on pricing and freight procurement. We hear all the time about how you can manage freight risk, how you can get the best rates using various platforms, for whether we're talking air or ocean. Is this a go-to solution for you now, or do you still put a lot of resources into uh, negotiating contracts and rates on a person-to-person -person level? Uh, let's call it old school. Are you still hitting the phones? 
Actually, I would say that it's been a huge benefit for all the BCOs and, and the large shippers and maybe, and of course, even for the medium and small size ones to have these tools at play. We do use them a lot. We have some fantastic metrics coming to us from uh, industry journals. We have a lot of freight indices which tell you where the rates are going. We have a lot of benchmarking and comparison tools available now. Even spot quoting is much easier because you have uh, a lot of these tools at our disposal. So overall, in terms of market intelligence and the ability to know, you know where rates are going, even at port pair level or if you're talking air, then at airport level or destination level, that visibility is there. And I'm now going to plug the Lodestar a bit as well, because when it comes to market intelligence, uh, it's a very good source of knowing what's going down, what's happening where, and we do use those intelligence inputs as well. But yes, coming back to negotiations, I would say for our long-term contracts, it's still very much a relationship and a personal game because we are large in terms of the volumes we source. And Electrolux as a company, we focus a lot on long-term contracts and supplier development, uh, innovation. We recognize our suppliers a lot, the, those who stand by us and those with whom we stand. And so when it comes to actually negotiating the actual big contracts, it's very much a personal game. The relationships count, the kind of rates we get, the validity we get, all of that comes into play. So for the short term idea about where rates are, definitely the new tools are helpful. But for our longer term contracts, it's always about the relationship and the negotiations do take on a very personal element as well. Those relationships, they've been slightly skewed maybe these last two years. It's been very much a carrier's market, whether you're looking at air or ocean. Demand for products right across the spectrum went through the roof during COVID lockdowns. And, and of course, as demand shot up, so did rates. But can you explain how all this played out for you as someone trying to manage with your various supply chain partners, all these new scenarios being thrown at you, both internally, presumably, and also externally? Right. This is where it's possible that uh, we have a, a slightly different story to tell. When the rates started going through the roof back in 2021, we had just tied up all our long-term ocean freight contracts uh, in the first quarter. And we actually had rates which were in the level, you know, of your $3,000 or forty for many of the trades of sub-$3,000, which was market level for that time. We also had entered into long-term contracts with some of our large uh, carriers. And of course, we deal not only with some of the top shipping lines, but we also have allocations to some of the smaller carriers on the shipping line side. And those contracts were for a certain amount of forecasted volumes, which were honored to a large extent by all our suppliers. Where we actually faced a lot of headwinds was that unanticipated to us, uh, we had a huge V-shaped recovery, which was foreseen, but not to the extent that the demand for appliances went through the roof. And we were just producing at breakneck speed and getting our goods into the markets, which meant that we had additional volumes on the inbound and outbound side for which we had to be in the market. And that is where we actually, it is for those additional volumes that we actually felt the pinch in terms of negotiating those ridiculous rates, uh, which we saw in the industry. So I would say that for 80% of our volumes, we had our carriers honoring our contracts. And again, this is something that will come maybe towards the, the next part of our conversation. But we do remember, we do have the memory and we know that they honored those contracts. They kept the rates in place till April this year. And then after that, we got, we generally saw the rate increase for us on 
Did we pay those ridiculous rates on some of the trades? Yes. Did we end up using some of our freight forwarding partners in this NBOCC type of contracts on the short term? Yes. Did we pay five times the amount for, for some of the flows which were already tendered into the contract because these were unforecasted ones? Yes. But overall, the scenario wasn't as dire as it could have been or from or what we heard others go through in the industry and on the air freight side as well. Are you still talking about the same big players? Are the same small players from pre-COVID as now? Yes, we are. Most of the relationships are in place. So you're still going to stick with the mix? Yes, we are still going to stick with the mix. Okay, if we just rewind a little bit through this COVID period, what were the biggest challenges for Electrolux? And you mentioned some there, but if you could maybe sort of order them slightly for us. Was, it, was this a, a predicting demand? Obviously, that sounds really difficult. Was it finding capacity? Was it those rates? But we also had all these supply chain bottlenecks on top of that, which caused all these delays. I mean, just tell us what it was like. I would say the largest impact that we felt in terms of uh, sleepless nights and trying to figure out what to do next was, of course, the unpredictability of the demand. And finding space was an issue. But like I just explained, our carriers did honor many of our contracts. So for the forecasted volumes, we were in a safe place. When it comes to the supply chain bottlenecks, we were all over the place, like probably many other players in the industry. We saw just about every type of effect, right? So we had the domino effect. Then we had the lemming effect, which I call because when the West Coast got congested, everybody started moving to the East Coast Then the East Coast got congested. So it's just been so interesting to watch the way the market has moved. And we, of course, played along and probably made some of the same moves. Then we've had the black swan effect at one point where black swan events were happening. And then so many of them happened, like a ship getting stuck in the middle of the Swiss Canal that now we don't worry about those anymore. So the supply chain bottlenecks definitely acted up in a big way in terms of testing us, testing the digital path we were already on, testing the resilience we were trying to build up on, testing our agility. And I would say that some of it went well, some of it did not go so well. But overall, we've just emerged to a place where now we are ready for the next round of uncertainty. The biggest among them, the biggest bottlenecks we faced were what is well known in the industry. We are an appliance manufacturer and the, the shortage of electronics and the chips, semiconductors, the control boards. That was a huge element that we had to work around. And combine that with the logistics problems that everybody faced, we ended up air freighting. Our annual average, like you said, is 6,000 tons. And we probably did double of that last year. So uh, you can imagine that in, in an industry where the EBIT is between 6 and 8% on, on a good day, you cannot afford to be air freighting uh, components all over the world. But we did just that because we had to meet the market demand and electronics were in short supply. And the only way we could compete was to get them off our suppliers' factories and into our factories in the shortest time possible. So all of that came together in a mix where it was tough. And then surprisingly, despite all of that, and because Electrolux as a company is invariably focused on certain North Stars, which keep us in track, 2021 was among our most profitable and most successful years in our records. So it all ended up well for us. These logistic shocks, they just don't seem to end, do they? We've, we've, you know, obviously, we've got a war in Europe. You mentioned the shift in cargo in the, in the States from the West to the East. We've still got zero COVID lockdowns in China, which is causing a lot of problems still. But I mean... Let's call this a post-COVID world, almost, almost there. Has all the shocks to the system and perhaps the different geopolitical environment that we're now in, is this changing how you might source product in any sort of fundamental way as you look at the challenges 
ahead. Essentially, are you, are you thinking that maybe your supply chains will look very, very different in five years than they are now? Again, we know that there is a lot of talk around near-shoring, friend-shoring, trying to keep our manufacturing or our footprint buffered and away from the shock that the geopolitical crisis might spill over with. But as a company, again, we are sticking to what we know best. We are not a company that goes into any knee-jerk reactions. We are still relying on supplier relationships that we've had over the past decade or more. And if those suppliers are located in an area or a region which is geopolitically affected, we find a way to get alternatives lined up. But it doesn't mean that we make a hasty exit. The ecosystems are too deep. We do not see a large change that way geographically. But again, uh, having seen how it is extremely, I think uh, there's a lot of hubris involved in case you try to start predicting what's going to happen. Just as an example, on our logistics side, till three months ago, there was a prediction that we would never be at pre-pandemic rate levels on the ocean side. And we can see a lot of that going awry in a very different way on the Trans-Pacific Eastbound. So in a larger context, I would really not be in a position to say how different the supply chains would look. But some interesting takeaways are that when we start looking at our supplier base in terms of our long-term relationships, long-term agreements, the value-based sourcing that Electrolux has always done, rewarding suppliers who, who stand by us through not only these disruptions, but on our sustainability journey. It's super important that all our suppliers go with us along with, you know, in terms of the sustainability goals that we have. We do not move away from them for certain shocks that come in in the short or the medium term. We've just had an example where we had our own suppliers collaborating with each other where a line in Mexico was down because of the shortage of printed circuit boards. And these suppliers were competitors for each other. One supplier flew in resin from one part of the world. The other supplier flew in catalyst from another part of the world. It reached another supplier's factory in Mexico, which was then just in time for them to create the PCBs, which would then move into our factory in Juarez so that it could start running again. So we've seen that kind of collaboration as well. And in case that kind of geographical spread trumps the risks that come with all these geopolitical tensions, we do find a way out of them in the short run. So that is a pretty long answer to a very short question, but that's where we are. Just those tenders, here. are you changing your strategy on them? Is, is there going to be a fundamental difference between how your mix of long and short-term contracts after the last few years? You mentioned there that shipping rates have collapsed almost as low, or even in, on some trains we're hearing they're below pre-pandemic levels already. Are you going to be uh, looking at that demand picture and going, we need to renegotiate some of these contracts as soon as we possibly can? Yes, to an extent, and, and we have a different approach on our ocean contracts and a different approach on our premium freight contracts. Uh, pretty much by 2020, 2021, any long-term contracts on the air freight side were absolutely not possible. So we shifted to a very, very short-term viewpoint on those contracts, and we are still in a pretty short-term contractual period and alignment with our main providers for on the premium freight side. But on the ocean freight side, again, to all the carriers that stood by us last year, they held on to rates which were way below market, which were probably at 10% of the market levels at certain points, and they honored our contracts. So to those carriers, which are among our biggest suppliers and they have a large portion of our business, we are doing the right thing by making our commitments to them and meeting our commitments to them with an approach where we expect them to come to us and tell us what they can do. 
So it's not that those contracts are right back on the negotiating table because the market has collapsed. On the other hand, there were certain carriers who had a little more tactical view with us last year, and they did not think twice before telling us that they would not be honoring some of the rates, but they were the smaller carriers. So with them, we are, of course, uh, we are doing what the market is doing, where we are back on the negotiating table. So it's a very segmented approach. The top carriers, the ones with which we have long-term contracts with, they are secure, but we are having some very reasonable discussions around being at competitive levels, but giving them breathing space. And with others, it's absolutely about, remember last year, we were on the other side. Now it's your turn to come back to the table and give us what's at the market levels. Yeah, you reap what you sow. It's payback time now. Absolutely. <laughs> I would, I would, uh, in a way, yes, but there's no schadenfreude attached to this, right? It's, it's, it's the market dynamics. And uh, uh, yes, well, yeah, you're right. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as you're looking to renegotiate those contracts with the different types of, of partners that you just described there, what sort of KPIs, key performance indicators are you looking for? from carriers from container lines or or if you want to talk about air cargo feel free but just on the shipping we've got less port congestion i mean you must be assuming that there's going to be more reliability of service from the container lines are you after assurances on detention and demorage maybe you want guarantees on transit times i'm assuming you want full transparency on all of this what sort of approach do you take to that so again, we have uh, very airtight contracts. Uh, even before we entered into the tender period, we have a lot of KPIs which are set out in the contractual terms that are signed, uh, the commercial terms, in fact, which are signed before we start allowing them to tender. And I would say that some of the KPIs you've mentioned are the plain vanilla ones, right? Even with other smaller carriers who have maybe less than 5% or between 5 and 10% of our business, we would be having KPIs which are in place and which we expect them to honor. And of course, which we also pursue them to meet. Do we get to make sure that they meet them every time? Sometimes, sometimes not. But the KPIs around transit times, no rolling of cargo, visibility and you know better ETAs, those are built in. And I would say they are honored most of the time. But a lot, lot of our focus on the KPIs is, again, on the two really large carriers who we have the largest share of business with and long-term agreements with, where the KPIs then go beyond just the transit time and uh, no rolling of the freight to sustainability measures, innovation, and a way forward where we can do better for our end consumers because we use these shipping lines. So it's a, again, here's where the segmentation comes in. With these carriers, we have very, very detailed scorecards and very, very nicely scheduled and conducted uh, business review meetings where we analyze in a partnership how we are doing for each other. And let me tell you, it's, it, there's a reverse angle to this as well. It's not that only the carriers have to perform to our expectations. We are very clear we want to be a shipper of choice. So what is it that we can do to help them do better correctly? A lot of talk is around forecasting. How can we help them by forecasting better and forecasting more accurately? What can we do better in terms of our processes and paperwork to be able to be a customer of choice for them? So it goes both ways. And then with, with these top carriers, it's the KPIs are actually met. And uh, we, we even track to make sure that we are, we are hitting the, the levels that have been set in the contract before we sign the long-term agreements with them. What sort of enforcement elements do you have in those contracts? Well, part of them are commercial and then uh, part of them are also about 
the growth opportunities with Electrolux, right? We know that a lot of the really large shipping lines now are looking at going beyond the shipping line business and into the integrator business. And Electrolux is, uh, with the huge amount of geographical coverage that we have, the, the size of our business, the sheer immense magnitude of what we do in terms of manufacturing, design, innovation, we are actually the perfect customer for a lot of these integrator ambitions. And we need them to do well on their essential KPIs on the shipping line side if they want to expand their integrator ambitions with us on contract logistics, on premium freight, on a lot of value-added services which they are really keen to perform for us. So apart from the, the commercial levers, we also have this additional business opportunity which is contingent to them performing really well on the services we first entailed that they first signed up for. So those big European carriers that are looking to move into that sort of integrated mm -hmm. logistics service provision market, mm -hmm. your message to them is how are you going to prove to us that you can do door to door if you can't do port to port? Yeah. And uh, if we cannot get, and coming back to your point about detention and demerages, we are going to work with carriers who reduce waste cost for us. The last two years, our whole idea was to manufacture and get our uh, appliances out in record time to our customers. Now the whole paradigm has changed. We are in a, in a situation where there are a lot of headwinds. We need to tighten our belts. Uh, we need to get rid of waste cost. And coming back to your very pertinent point about demerages and detentions, there's a whole nebulous gray world out there which nobody seems to have a hold on. So they need to do a lot more on visibility on that, on giving us root causes, on finding fixes along with us because we might be responsible for some of those. But they, as the carrier, need to let us know what's going right, what's going wrong, and how we get rid of those base costs. So it's not only about meeting the essential KPIs. Currently, the carrier reliability is at 44%. How do you enforce a KPI on transit times when globally the carriers are at, at best? The best carrier is slightly above 50% in terms of reliability. So then we get more realistic and say, okay, we understand this is the market here, but then you do better on the other metrics. And then we discuss what we can do with you on some of the value-added services that are definitely there for the taking, but prove yourselves here first. Tia, COP27's in progress as we're talking over in Egypt. How important is removing emissions from your supply chains to Electrolux as a company? And what do you do about going about that and finding partners that you can work with to help you do that? It's like we said, it's one of the North Stars. So there is the whole consumer focus that drives us and operational excellence because you want to do better in terms of giving back into the product you produce. But the biggest thing that is a part of our DNA and it's been there for the last more than 17 years that at least I've been here is the focus on sustainability. This has been a, a guiding light for us long before it became fashionable and then way long before it became essential, which it is now. We set targets for us ourselves back in 2015 that we would reduce our emissions in terms of our manufacturing operations by 80% in 2025, so over a 10-year period. And by 2021, we'd already reduced our uh, emissions by the scope one and scope two emissions by 80%, by 78%. So the 80% is around the corner for us. For Electrolux, we manufacture appliances and scope three emissions are really important as well. We do expect in terms of the entire supplier base in our value chain to support us with a lot of these sustainability efforts. We reward any kind of, rather we encourage 
sustainability measures by our suppliers, which are more to do with actual emission reduction. We are absolutely not into greenwashing or offsetting. We are one of the companies which is, in fact, we've been rated uh, at the very top level of the Dow Jones Sustainability Index for the last 12 years running. And we can do this because we have also an equal emphasis on suppliers' sustainability efforts. We are part of the CDP disclosure program where we get rated at the very highest levels. And as part of CDP, it's very essential that we engage our top suppliers, not only on logistics, but even on commodities, to come on that journey with us. Because if they are not doing well on their sustainability initiatives, it cascades into an impact on our inability to meet our science-based targets and our sustainability targets. So it's a, uh, I would say it's a pretty well-oiled machine. Uh, we are on this journey with our top suppliers. We are seeing the results. And even in terms of on the logistics side, Electrolux was absolutely one of the first to put its money where its mouth is with respect to decarbonization. We tied up earlier this year, last year, in fact, with one of the top European carriers for their biofuel program. We allocated nearly 40% of our total volumes that were to move with that carrier were to move on, on the biofuel program. So I would say we are even readier than our other competitors in terms of meeting the new norms that IMO is going to come up with. We are already on that journey. We are, we are already making reserves to spend more on decarbonization programs. We are already showing that we are getting to our carbon emission reduction targets on many of our scope one and scope two. In fact, even on our scope three. So. We are on the right path there. Good to hear it too. And that's obviously one of the big challenges for any any people in our industry, any stakeholders, in, whether they're providing freight or buying it. Just looking ahead to 2023, if we may, I, as we've been discussing, there's a lot of economic turbulence out there. We've got recessions looming in many of your key markets. How do you go about finding the right level of orders and planning your inventory? For me, looking in from the outside, it feels like it's almost as tricky now as it was at the height of COVID, just in a very different way. I agree. And, you know, here is where I will come back to the whole point about the long game. So we knew back in 2021 when the demand for appliances just did not seem to taper off, that this tapering off would come. Did we get, get it down right up to the month where it would happen? Maybe not. Uh, do we have uh, headwinds on... Uh, excess inventory in some of our key locations uh, globally? Absolutely. Uh, and what are we doing about it is that we are getting more acute and definitely more focused on the SNOP process, the forecasting, how it dovetails back into our planning around the inbound flows, the outbound flows. All of this in the context of the fact that we do not move away from our core focus on making sure that we are still able to kind of get our appliance to our consumers on time, making sure we don't lose focus on our sustainability. We are tightening our belts. We are finding operational efficiencies within. We know, we, like I said, we got on a lot of excess flab when we were just chasing capacity and making sure that we are able to produce the number of units that are required by the market. Now it's a, it's a different ballgame and we've gone through these cycles earlier. Uh, we have an idea about what we need to do and uh, we are getting there with the knowledge that it's going to be a rough couple of months. Uh, but thanks to the fact that Electrolux has such a wide geographical reach, we are facing certain problems in terms of the demand in our mature markets. But just as the focus is always on the consumer, we had anticipated that it's the emerging markets which would be the bulwark of a lot of our expansion. 
And those emerging markets are actually in a very good place right now. Will the demand taper off there as well? Yes. Are our teams working uh, overtime, trying to get the forecast right and you know get the operations and uh, manufacturing aligned? Absolutely. Is this tough, headwindy kind of situation going to stay for a few months? Yes. When will it turn a corner? Uh, probably there are some people who can make some guesses. Uh, that's not me. But yeah, we are going to ride through this because of our overall approach that we have. We are still focused very much. Our consumers don't need to know what's going on at our end. Our business is to produce the right appliances, the right experience for our consumers. And we are going full steam ahead with that. Nothing changes for us. And of course, we battle our, our demons at the back end, which we are doing. And best of luck with all of that. TMO, and thank you so much for joining me on the Lodestar podcast today. It's been a real pleasure and very insightful. Thanks, Mike, for having me. This was fun. And we take the conversation offline and converse more around this. And a big set of best wishes to you and the Lodestar team. You do a great job on a lot of the information we get. So keep getting it through to us. How do you follow up all that fantastic insight from Electrolux's Tia Mohan? Well, I guess you bring in two of our industry's leading journalists who both specialize in air freight. First up, we have Freightwaves Air Cargo Editor, Eric Kulish. Hello, Eric. Good day, Mike. Thanks for having me on. You're very welcome. And joining us once more is Lodestar publisher, Alex Lenane. Hello, Alex. Hi, Mike. Alex and Eric, most of the year you guys are competing for stories. You've both been at Tiarca's Air Cargo Forum in Miami doing just that. What were your main takeaways from that show? Maybe start with you first, Alex. Any listeners to the Lodestar podcast will know you absolutely hammered IATA's efforts putting on an air freight event in London a few weeks back. Did Tiarca do a better job? Yes, it did. Happily. It was sort of the biggest show we've all been to in quite a while, obviously, because of COVID. And the, the conference was quite good and it was free to attend, quite importantly. So you could bring more staff than at sort of smaller, expensive events. But actually, it wasn't just Checkers Air Cargo Forum. Apparently, it was also Transport Logistic Americas. Although there were very few stands that weren't air cargo. So it's hard to see the benefit for them, really. So it was organized by Messer Mention that organizes Munich. And it organized show on behalf of Chaka. And it, in fact, it's just sent a PR that I imagine Eric will have just got as well, saying that nearly 6,000 people attended. I cannot believe that's true. I, I really can't. They did click you every time you went in and out. And you had to go in and out quite a lot because there was no internet in the show itself. So you had to leave to read your WhatsApp messages to find out when you were meeting people. So if, if that's how it was counted, then yes, yeah, 6,000 people well, people went in 6,000 times, I can believe that. And that, that sort of brings me on to the other thing. It was People found it very expensive. I think that's probably because for Europeans, the US now feels painfully expensive. If you're British, it's even worse. I mean, just buying a cup of coffee made you want to weep. And so I think the exhibitors felt the pain there financially. And, and the internet access, apparently the venue wanted $80,000 for internet access or $80 a day per device. So yeah, expensive was mostly what people thought. So, so free entry, but expensive elsewhere. Eric, there's talk of, uh, or, or it's been confirmed, I believe, that they're going to do the forum in Miami permanently. Presumably they'll be, they'll be bringing in other events alongside it, as well as Alex just mentioned. Is this because it's just a perfect working environment? 
or is or beaches and bars a factor here? Well, it's a nice destination, uh, but I think the overriding reason is that it's efficiency. It's if you rotate around the world to different locations and you have to set up a giant exhibition hall and find to do all the logistics of getting a convention center and learning all the local parties for loading exhibits and moving them in. It's just easier to have a central place where you've used the same uh, players, the same unions, and kind of wash and rinse, wash and, and redo. And, you know, it's a great location. Miami's uh, one of the largest air cargo hubs in the U.S. So I think that's the motivating factor. And then they'll just do some regional events in their smaller executive conference uh, other parts of the world. We're going to hear a bit later on from TAC Index about where the rates are going in, in shipping and air cargo. And a spoiler alert here, I, I guess you guys already know this, but they're not going up a great deal, despite this being the theoretical peak season. But uh, there, were, there were signs of optimism in Miami, right? I do feel it was slightly misplaced, but yes, there was some optimism. They, people were saying that it, it, things could improve after Chinese, or at least stabilise after Chinese New Year. But that feels rather too soon for everything to have righted itself, frankly. And others were saying that rates won't really go back to a traditional peak and lull until 2025. So there was, there was quite a lot of uncertainty, but everyone wants to put their best foot forward and put a bright smile on it. That was my impression, really. That does seem rather optimistic. Eric, uh, you reported on Boeing. Uh, they're taking a long-term view on this and they're expecting air cargo to be quite a fruitful revenue generator. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I would just um, add to what Alex said that there was some uh, optimism, but it was more like there was also pessimism because no one really knows if it'll bounce back after Chinese New Year. There's some thought that with inventories so high now, people are holding off on orders and maybe they burn off those inventories and will start reordering come next spring to bring up their stocks. So that's, I guess, the thinking. But then that raises the question of rather than having a peak next year, we just have a steady state from spring onward. So that's kind of where things land, but the hopes are all over the map. But long term, yeah, the prospects are good. You know, Boeing put out a reintroduced a 20-year forecast for air cargo and said it would double in 20 years that the freighter fleet would expand by 60% and a lot of replacement aircraft, but also a lot of growth and and just uh, there's a lot of factors behind that e-commerce, uh, growth and trade, poverty levels are coming down around the world. So you have more people going into the middle class and, you know, a lot of new entrants in the market, such as ocean carriers like Maersk and CMA, CGM. And then just the spread between ocean carriers are becoming more disciplined in their pricing. We know the ocean rates are way down from the COVID peak, but the carriers have gotten much better at capacity management, so the prices might be a little higher than historically, and that might drive some interest in the air. It depends who you ask, Eric. Some of those rates on some of those trades are dropping below pre-pandemic levels, so it's going to be very interesting to see what the carriers can do, and I'll be talking about that a little bit later on. But I want to look somewhere else now, if I may. One of the issues that we've seen these last few months affecting global supply chains, whether it's by ocean or by air, is... Zero COVID lockdowns in China. Now, we'd, we were hoping that there might be some improvements when the political situation in China became a bit clearer after Congress met last month. There's not that much positivity at the moment. We're hearing that lockdowns in Guangzhou are, are still, we're already hitting production. Project 44 reports that export dwell times in Shenzhen ports are climbing and vessel queues are building. Did either of you hear much about this impacting air cargo while you were at Miami? 
I, I honestly can't say I did, to be honest. Miami felt really far from China. Well, I mean, it is really far from China. There was a sort of constant buzz about chaos and how that would affect air cargo, whether it's strikes or lockdowns or COVID or climate change. Or As one CEO said to me, um, we're just the ambulance chasers of freight. So they're hoping for chaos and disaster, I would think. But specifically about the Chinese lockdowns, I, I didn't hear anything, but maybe Eric, did you? Well, I talked to one forwarder who said the situation in Shanghai, where there's been lots of challenges over the last couple of years with a lot of ground handling shortages with all the lockdowns, that's really improved a lot. And But now things are stabilizing. So some of the workers are now are not as scared to come in, worried that they'll get put in isolation. So that's gotten better. And there's some COVID easing. I think Chinese authorities this week said they would... Um, reduce the time for quarantine for inbound travelers and have some other quarantine loosening. So that's good overall. But as you mentioned, Mike, there's lockdowns now in Guangzhou and the Zhengzhou, which is where I, iPhones are produced by uh, Foxconn. And uh, Apple last week said that they're going to have shipment delays to be affected by the Foxconn production slowdowns. That's right. I mean, I, I did speak to an analyst at Nomura, and they're hopeful that there might be a bit more clarity about zero COVID policy from March onwards when there's going to be a, a more of a, a more settled Chinese administration when Xi gets all his appointments in place. So let's look forward to March and maybe things will improve slightly in China. Just looking at those U.S. carriers, Eric, and the U.S. market more specifically, how would you say that sector is now performing? Do you think the Combi carriers, will the cargo as much attention in future as they did during COVID lockdowns? I think it'll be hard to hit the same uh, revenue growth that they had during the pandemic when passenger flights were pretty much grounded and they flew all those cargo-only flights. So a lot of the U.S. carriers so that carried belly cargo saw a little bit of dip in revenues in the third quarter. But a lot of that is, a they actually did pretty well overall. They, a lot of that is attributed to that they're not flying their cargo-only flights anymore and yields are lower. But belly capacity is increasing and some of them are going to emphasize high-value cargo, so they're hoping that will offset. It was interesting at the Tiaka conference, some of them had very prominent booths near the front of the show, which are more expensive. So WestJet and Air Canada in particular are new entrants with their own freighter fleets. So we'll just have to see how they expand those. Alex, you were saying earlier that Miami felt a long way from China. Did Miami also feel a long way from uh, Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt, where COP27 was taking place? Yeah, definitely. But sustainability was much more on the agenda than it normally is, I'd say. I mean, it's been pretty much ignored by airlines for a very long time, but they just can't afford not to now. And Tiaka made a point of sustainability. There was also a biofuels, the largest biofuels producer for aviation, spoke quite a lot. The issue is that there just isn't enough to go around. So the smaller airlines aren't able to buy it because the large airlines buy all of it. And just because they they want to show their customers that they're trying to do something. So really, although it's it's crucial and critical, we just need to get to a critical mass of production. That was really the conversations that I heard. No, I agree. Sustainability was uh, heavily on the agenda. Tiaka talked about their Blue Sky Sustainability Program to kind of vet people on and what they're doing. And I think there's a sense that you need a more holistic approach, you know, where the airports are involved, you have ground infrastructure. It's not just an airline uh, commitment. Finally, guys, what did the Tiaka Air Cargo Forum tell us about the health more generally of air cargo? 
Was there any additional takeaways you can share with our listeners? One of the things I sort of brought away was, is much like Eric said, there are an awful lot of new players in the space. He said WestJet, Air Canada, Cargo is buying a lot of freighters. And then you look at the old hands like Cargo Lux or Cathay, those ones who've been doing this for a very long time. They're being very, very careful about capacity. They know the drill. And there are a lot of new kids on the block who I think are quite ambitious, shipping lines as well. So in terms of the health of the industry, although they've, they've got a lot of money from the last couple of years, if it were me, I wouldn't be rushing into buying a freighter right now, whatever Boeing says, because at some point the forwarders are going to come off their contracts. The new players are all going to have their capacity. And I think, I think we're going to see a, bit of, a little bit of overcapacity in the market. That was my feeling about the health of air cargo. Eric, what did you reckon? I agree. But I also think there's more of a discipline and a long-term approach to thinking and investments in the air cargo sector, especially among the passenger players, where there's investments in digital and people and equipment and infrastructure, maybe that you haven't seen in the past because they see after the pandemic, the benefits of cargo, and then the need for collaboration with these community airport systems and being able to share that information in a kind of a neutral site so that people can plan and deal with contingencies in real time and eliminate paper and delays. So I think there's more emphasis on that and hopefully it'll be executed on. Excellent. Alex, Lenane, Eric Kulish, thanks for joining me on the Lodestar podcast today. Thank you, Mike. Thank you. Okay, so let's move on. Let's put some numbers to those rates, or, or maybe it should be rates to those trends. And to do this, I'd like to welcome back to the Lodestar podcast, our regular contributor. It's TAC Index MD, Peyton Burnett. Hello, Peyton. Hi, Mike. Welcome back, Peyton. Let's look at this macroeconomic situation first, if we may. I've been having a look at the latest purchase and managers index numbers from S&P Global and JP. Morgan, both their worldwide readings and those for key markets such as the US and Europe. And they're almost uniformly showing declines versus September. Reporting on its global index, JP Morgan said, and I quote here, new order intakes and international trade flows continued to dwindle in the face of heightened economic inflationary and political pressures. So, Peyton, are you seeing anything on the macro side that gives you any cause for optimism? In the long term, yes. Hopefully the COVID restrictions in China will ease over time. And also bear in mind that there is older freighter equipment will start to come off the market and going back into the desert. Particularly the older 747-400 factory bills uh, cost a lot to service. And then new Dash 8s being built, the B7. 777 freighters are still expensive and not suitable for all markets, meaning less freighter capacity will be available in the future. Not much new capacity will be coming on the market. Okay, that's interesting. Let's have a think about how that's playing out in rating. I'm just going to do a comparison with what's going on in the, the shipping market, and then we'll move back to the air cargo sector. In the container shipping business, there wasn't really a peak season this year. According to Zenitor, Anna, as we've also been reporting on the Lodestar.com, on some shipping trade, spot rates are now pushing pre-pandemic levels. And there are signs at the moment that we could fall further this quarter when uh, pre-holiday season demand tends to shift towards uh, air cargo. Now, throwing that we've got a lot of ships being delivered next year, 
it's not looking very good for vessel owners and uh, people who've been enjoying profits from that particular ocean freight pie, even in the third quarter when there were some more record profits reported by the leading carriers. But let's look at Q4, Peyton. Are you seeing any signs in recent weeks of an air cargo peak building? What's TAC index showing on those key lanes? Sure. Just before we get into that, we are in an abnormal market. A lot of the goods were moved at the front end of the year and volumes outbound from the Hong Kong market might even be flat by year end due to the heavy front end trading activity. TAC rates from Hong Kong to US are reaching parity and declining, which is somewhat unusual at this time of the year. But India and Vietnam continue to decline both to Europe and the US. And these are very much spot heavy markets. Uh, Transatlantic, somewhat flat, a little bit of mixed signals there. Looking at these indices that we use to to guide our businesses, looking at particularly the spot freight rates, one of the things that has been echoed all the time on social media in relation to container shipping is that these declines in spot rates, even though they are being reflected on the indices themselves, there's a lag between what forwarders are, are reporting and what the indices are showing. How do you address that lag at TAC index, Peyton? Sure. Then this is sort of a, quite an interesting point to touch upon. And in relation to TAC index, at the moment, the methodology for both the Baltic and TAC freight is a mixture of spot and contract rates, and we'll actually be forking the methodology. So the interesting point of note is that both China to Europe and China USA, the rates are somewhat elevated in the TAC index data sets. And the main reason for this is the methodology of the indices includes both spot and contract rates. And contract rates are box-based agreements holding up the pricing predominantly. However, in the raw data sets, we're actually seeing an inversion. So what I mean by this is that earlier this year, we started to publish both upper and lower quintile data sets. Now in strong markets, what we were seeing is the upper quintile was much more representative of spot pricing. And in the soft market that we're seeing now, we're actually seeing an inversion of the pricing clusters. So actually it's switched over whereby the lower quintile is now representative of the spot market. Now, in the current data sets, you can't see that. We, we are launching both spot and blended rate indices of spot and contract. So, so that will enable users to see more clearly how the pricing clusters are moving. When are you launching them, Peyton? There's all these compliance issues. So they'll be released privately first for a month or two. And then it will start to be released out to the public. So I, I would say sometime in Q1. Okay, Peyton. So just if you could maybe get out your crystal ball, what, what's happening next in the market? What should people who are buying air cargo space be planning for? And, and how should they be preparing for this very volatile market we have? Well, we're still expecting continued volatility in short and medium term whilst abnormal market conditions exist. We're seeing more users in the market moving to index-linked agreements, which helps absorb market volatility. Yes, people may choose to purchase their cargo in the spot market, but if the market tightens, then index-linked agreements will mean that they won't have to renegotiate their prices to access spot market capacity. I'm going to put you on the spot here a bit. 
Peyton. Can you give me some predictions? Put yourself out there. Give me three nailed on certainties for air freight in 2023. So one is greater use of index linked agreements. The second is more uptake or adoption of Web3 blockchain solutions and air cargo. And lastly, we see the older aircraft coming out of the market as the market begins to normalize. Peyton Burnett, thanks for joining me today on the Lodestar podcast. Thanks, bye. I'd like to thank TAC Index, the Lodestar's air freight data provider, and Zenita, our sea freight data supplier. Big thanks to my editing team, Karen Ball and Tom Matthews. And a big shout out to OEC's Jason Haith for his marvellous baritone introduction to this podcast. And most of all, gratitude to you all for listening. We'll be back soon. 